Samantha. And you're listening to Reaper Tales. And today I am bringing you not one, but two Black Widows. So says the name or the ex- <laughs> explanation of the name of the episode. So, um, yeah, so you're, you're going to get a two for today. Um, but before I get too far into it, uh, Montana. What are we drinking? I'm so glad you asked. We are drinking the Black Widow. Uh, And I know that we've had a Black Widow drink before on this one. Or at least one. Yeah. At least. I mean, I've covered a few, so in all fairness. Have we done more than one? I know we haven't done this one, this drink. Uh, This is a different Black Widow drink. So bear with us. Uh, This one. You're going to need three basil leaves, two blackberries, one and a half ounces of tequila, one ounce of lime juice, one teaspoon of agave nectar, and some more like basil leaves and blackberry to garnish. In a shaker, you're going to muddle the basil leaves and blackberries, add the tequila, lime juice, and agave nectar with ice. Shake until well chilled. Strain into a... Get out of here. Strain into a stemless cocktail glass over yeah, fresh ice. We ain't that, we ain't that fancy. Uh, do it into whatever glass you want. Yeah, that's what I say. <laughs> uh, and then you can garnish with basil and blackberries on a skewer. And that actually makes just one drink. But, uh, this time. Yeah, this time. Make it so. a double. Cheers. We're doing a twofer. Make a double. <laughs> Make it a double. Yeah. All right, Montana. Are you ready to hear about our two Black Widows today? I am. I've never been more excited for a Black Widow episode. So I, I have the two Black Widows I'm covering. I named it, sort of titled it, um, the oldest Black Widow of Alabama and the not so much Black Widow of Alabama. Oh. Okay. <laughs> so... Like again, like, I, <laughs> old isn't like the like the case is old or like the people. You'll find are old. out. You'll oh, find okay. Out. So yes, both of these are from Alabama, and if you've been counting, we are now at five from this lovely state. But uh, they're the last two because I really couldn't find any more, and there's not a lot of information about either one of these. But I could not not cover them, so I figured it made more sense to just combine them because they both have a little twist each one has a twist in it that uh was i just couldn't not talk about so I'm, I'm i've so been ready. i've been wanting to cover the first case ever since i read about it in um the book that i've i've referenced before that's from kelly kazak um i don't have it all in, in my uh in, in the case notes but Oh my gosh, this one, I've been wanting to cover it, but I was like, oh, I can't find much information. And then I dug and dug and dug and dug and dug and dug and dug. Yeah, there's not a lot of information. So I had to come up with a second. my life. I had to go with a second one and then found a surprise, a little nugget. So 
The first Black Widow is named Betty Jo Green. Originally known as Betty Jo Vickers, she was born June 14, 1931, to Claude Columbus Vickers and Minnie Mae Sims in Limestone, Alabama. My grandfather and my dad, first names, both Claude. Oh, interesting. And you don't hear Claude too often. Am I a Black Widow? Maybe. I wouldn't be surprised. Watch Not much is, that would be explain why you don't want to cover them. <laughs> You've been taking notes. Not much Not much is known about her early years, but we know she lived in and around Athens as an adult. On February 5th, 1948, at the age of 17, Betty Jo married Raymond Fraser Cooley, born November 8th, 1914, in Limestone, Alabama, as well. So here's where we get to moving a little quickly, because there wasn't as much information as I would have liked to have found about these moments on the timeline, but I'm just going to go ahead and provide you kind of a quick timeline with all the details that I could find. Wait, I have to ask, does everybody love Raymond? No. Oh. Oh, I don't know. Again, I couldn't find a lot of information. Come on, that was a good joke. It seemed like they did. Maybe he wasn't funny as the other one. Yeah. And the other one wasn't that funny either. <laughs> I was going to say it, on. but I figured you would you would cut to the chase. On June 14th, 1973, Raymond Cooley died at the age of 58. There was no suspected foul play at the time, nor later when it was investigated in 1984. Spoiler. On July 15th, 1979, her sister-in-law, Grace Blankenship, died at the age of 60. She had become a widow, uh, talking about Grace, Grace had become a widow at the age of 47 and must have either moved in with a couple. And that would be children. <laughs> and that would be Sophia. Okay. Okay. Apparently uh, she's trying to tear the house down. Um, so Grace had become a widow at the age of 47 and must have moved in with the couple or at least lived close by. Yet again, no suspicions yet. Later, on November 30th, 1978, Glenn Orman Green also died at the age of 61. Somehow, still no suspicions, at least none that were reported at the time. Which she And Oakley's making an appearance. So, hey. Yeah, I forgot to include in here because it must have not been on the timeline. So, Raymond Cooley, her first husband, died at the age of 58 in 73. At some point between 73 and 79, when Grace died, she married Grace's brother, Glenn Orman Green. I couldn't find the exact year, so I forgot to put it in the middle here. But I couldn't find marriage certificates. I couldn't find a record. But somewhere in between there, she married him. And then Grace died. And then what? Well, actually, Glenn died first. And then the the timeline got all screwy, and I, I had to keep playing with it. But. So, Glenn Orman Green was her second husband. Okay. And he died at the age of 61, but there were no suspicions about his death either. And this was the second husband that had died at a relatively early age. I mean, even back then, they lived past 60. So, 58 for the first husband, 61 of the second one. And then shortly after that, her sister-in-law also dies at the age of 60. Then, on December 6th, uh, December 6th 1981, W.E who went by Bill Brooks, who was also Betty Joe's employer, died. So December 6, 1981. Author Self, Betty Joe's new fiance, was hospitalized when he became paralyzed on November 5, 1984. 
After being at the hospital for a period of time, he began to recover and was released. Wait, can I guess? Can I guess? Can I guess no. what she was using? No. Come no. on. No. I'm, I'm not going to say arsenic. <sighs> I was. I was You're such a bitch. No. So okay. Yeah. So you got all that. You got mm-hmm. it all logged in your brain. All right. Can't believe you're gonna steal my thunder like that. Anyway, on November 18th, an investigation was opened by the sheriff. Glenn Orman Green's body was exhumed first on November 30th and was tested and found to have arsenic. Oh, <laughs> Betty was. I wasn't gonna say arsenic. That's what I said. I was no, it was say, definitely arsenic. <laughs> I was gonna say either uh, nightshade or um, lead poisoning. Those would both be good, but no, yeah. she wasn't that original. Because that's uh, that's typically what you get when when you said uh, paralysis. I was like, oh, that's Mm-mm. not typically like the first sign of arsenic poisoning. Arsenic poisoning makes first. you blow your ass out. It's uh, not the first. We've <laughs> yeah. gone over that a few times. So I was like, how many uh, complaints are normally the first one? <laughs> paralysis. That's like nightshade. That's I don't like... think it was the first situation. I think he got to that point. Okay. All right. So anyway, Betty was then arrested on December 12th and held at Limestone County Jail. Shortly after, Grace Blankenship's body was also exhumed and found to have arsenic as well. On December 20th, Arthur was re-hospitalized, and this time they tested him and found he had arsenic in his system as well. So keep in mind, Betty was arrested on the 12th, so he hasn't had any reoccurring doses unless she had it in, like, the stuff in the apartment, and he was dumb enough to continue to consume anything in that apartment or house. But he was re-hospitalized 18, or eight days later. So well, we, a little over a week. We all know that men aren't the most intelligent creatures. So either earth. this was because he had already had so much in his system, or he had continued to consume stuff that she had mixed it in. Okay. On, I mean, allegedly. On January 8th, 1985, <laughs> Bill Brooks' body was exhumed as well. And when tested, was found to have arsenic. But in this case, that was not considered the actual cause of death. Oh, what was? Also, there's arsenic in his body. So uh, it might have not have been the actual cause of death, but it probably was a contributing factor if I had to guess. Yeah, like perpetuated something that was already there. Uh, yeah, let's, let's, let's just say. In February of that year, Betty Jo was indicted on three charges. The murders of Glenn Orman Green, Grace Blankenship, and the attempted murder of her fiancé, Arthur Self. Shortly after her arrest, it was reported she confessed to poisoning by adding a little arsenic in her victim's coffees. Side note. So are you, because this was bugging me, are you feeling like you've heard this story before? Like I've covered it? Because I was the entire time. I was like, I feel like I've cut, I I, I kept going back because I checked no less than three times on all of the other cases that I covered to make sure I didn't cover this case because I felt like I had. No, because the ones you've covered have either been, like, a dessert or, like, you didn't talk about what food they went into. Okay. So, yeah, it was just me. But weirdly enough, or is it, Audrey Marie Hilly, who I covered in the past, was actually arrested in 1979, but fled to New England and Florida, etc., to hide from the police this is the one that made up a twin sister. She was from Aniston oh, yeah. and killed her husband yeah. and attempted to kill her daughter and then 
Carol was tested and found to have arsenic in her system. They exhumed Frank, her husband, and found him to be positive for arsenic. Uh, So it was remarkably similar and almost at the exact same time. What's so funny is, like, I don't remember you telling me that. Well, I covered it, so I guess it would make sense that my memory would be better, number one, and number two, let's be honest. I don't don't remember you covering it, but I know that I listened to another podcast recently that covered this that same story, and I was like, where the fuck have I heard that? (laughs) (laughs) No, fuck you. (laughs) I Googled, no, I like, I literally legitimately like Googled to see who had covered it, and it was no other podcast that I had seen. And our podcast didn't actually come up for it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, sounds about right. Oh, well. Um, But oddly enough, it's like another A city in Alabama because Betty was from Athens. Audrey was from um, Anniston. So it's just kind of weird. Same timeline, both from A cities in Alabama. I feel like because of the timeline, though, um, I mean... It's awfully close. Glenn died in 78, but at the end of 78, and Audrey was actually, I said she was arrested, but she may have been arraigned at 79, in 79. I can't remember, but like, it's so similar that I wonder if she maybe got the idea from, yeah, Yeah, that's kind of what I'm wondering. Copycat. Yeah. But I promise this story is definitely different and there is definitely a unique part to this which i knew i hadn't covered so i just i kept playing it over and over in my head i'm like i feel like i've covered this there's no way and i also did find two different sources that i looked at that confused the two so i i would see like they would quote sources and it would talk about parts i'm like that doesn't sound right and then it would say audrey somewhere in the article and i'm like oh you you quoted the wrong one so no, I felt a little bit better. That has happened to me. Like when I was researching a bunch of different cases on one of our joint ones that will come out before this one, this one person kept coming up for it. Uh, I, I covered the Belo murder or mm-hmm. massacre. And in researching it, this one person kept coming up. And I was like, I finally like clicked on it. I was like, maybe like somebody thought he had something to do with it. Nothing to do with it. Not yeah, it just gets like ta- pulled in or tagged somehow, yeah. and then it just perpetuates like a bunch of different had places. Not a single thing to do with it. Like, obviously, this person had done something terrible. Um, but there were but not this. There was not this. There was no co- even even if they had if I if he had done what something similar to what I had covered. I would be like, maybe that's why they, like, tagged him. But this person did something extremely different than what I covered in the Below murders or massacre. So it was just like, what the fuck? Seriously, Google? Yeah, it definitely happens. It's like one person does it wrong and then it just yeah, it messes spirals. everything up. Yeah. <sighs> All right. So in March of that year, Betty Jo was found mentally competent to stay in trial after being sent briefly to stay at the Bryce Hospital in Tuscaloosa for psychiatric evaluation and treatment. Remember that place? No. I covered that. I I bet she was like, let me get out of here, bitches. (laughs) I will take jail. (laughs) I will take anything. The arraignment was initially scheduled but then postponed on May 22nd, 1986. The defense had argued that possibly before she was sent to Bryce, I'm assuming, 
Betty Jo claimed that she had another woman living inside of her body since childhood. And that woman who was, it, it was that woman who had killed her husband and her, his sister, not her. Honey, me too. Specifically, this woman lived in the left side of her body. Oh, okay. She was very specific. Um, so um, I'm guessing they were going for an insanity plea initially, which is fair if she genuinely thought she had another woman living in the left side of her body. I think, I think however, that, I think that's just like your own internalized rage. Because um, I have to talk to mine on a regular basis and be like, you can't. Well, that's your other personality, darling. this. Unfortunately, this didn't work as two doctors found her competent to stand trial. I'm shocking. She was, right. She was finally convicted of all three counts on September 30th, 1986. She was sentenced by Limestone County Circuit Judge Henry Blizzard to three 99-year life sentences on October 17th, 1986 to be served consecutively at Tutwiler Prison for Women in Alabama. Ooh, Tutwiler? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, no, I'll, until, I'll cover that at some point. She was most recently up for parole March of 2021, but was denied. She is now 92. And from everything I could find, the oldest living female, if not the oldest, I think she might be the second or third oldest living person to be currently serving a sentence in the state. I mean. So that's why I said the oldest. Black uh, it's, been a while. It, it's been a hot minute. Um, so some interesting comments that I found on unknownmisandry.blogspot.com, which was an interesting site. Mostly I pulled it for the comments just because it was interesting. And it was one of the few places that actually covered this case. It was ridiculously hard to find it, even though I feel like this is really interesting. So maybe there's just not a lot of information that can be found, but I just, it feels odd that not more have covered this case because it's just so weird but so uh somebody posted this woman lived next door to me she watched me while my mother worked i can still see the inside of her apartment i ate and drank cookies tea and many other things that she prepared my mother had trace amounts of arsenic in her system from being poisoned while drinking coffee with that crazy lady she enjoyed seeing people suffer, no matter the gender, but her main focus was always women, which is interesting because all the ones that you see are men, but maybe she did it to women too. I don't know. Well, women They're are more uh, aware that something's wrong if they eat something, yeah. if they do something. Stay away. Make some, yeah, they're going to stay away. So maybe she was. There are many women she poisoned that were not mentioned. To know someone that is capable of that level of evil changes you. I was six when I met her. I was 14 when she was arrested. Her motive was simple. Jealousy and a blatant disdain for anyone who got more attention than her. Another person posted, I know Miss Betty personally. She's 88. Let it go. Release her. Worse has been done. She served her time. I'm sorry. It doesn't, it doesn't take like a, you know, a bodybuilder or like a 20-year-old um able-bodied person to fucking poison somebody no you can easily do it in your 90s <laughs> you can do it in your 90s so uh as my new phrase has been going uh get fucked <laughs> so the next person says she is eligible for release but none in her family none of her family members will take her i personally know one of them 
Yeah. So even if she was paroled, nobody would want her. Um, Another post was, and this was actually as recent as January of this year. She was evil. She killed my friend's grandpa and aunt. She was also, so it would be their friend's grandpa and aunt. I'm not sure how that would work out, but I feel like that would be her second husband maybe and his sister, but that would be her granite, but I may be called just aunt. She also poisoned others. She was let off easy. Imagine my surprise when I find out that my grandfather's cousin is a black widow who killed my best friend's family members. There's a lot of mental illness in the family, but sorry, she did okay in life. She has a job. She's made friends. She did okay. She was jealous as another poser poster has mentioned. She deserves to remain in prison. She has no family left and the few who remain are deeply saddened and ashamed that she's a part of their family. It's not that deep. She wanted to watch these people suffer because she's evil. I don't think it's... Tell us how you really feel. I don't think it's that. I think it was... Like anything in this world, I think it was about control. Yeah. I think that was a lot of it. So I do want to take a moment to talk about kind of a side note because it's something that kind of came up in my mind so there's an article linked in the show notes that reflects on the aging population in alabama's jails according to dothaneagle.com 27 percent of all alabama inmates are 51 years or older and nearly one in 10 are over 60 that's more than 2500 inmates over 60 years old of those that are over 60 more than 400 are serving life sentences without parole but as of November 2022, just seven people were entered into the medical forelow prog- program. The year before, there were only three. Over six years ago, the U.S. Department of Justice began investigating the state's overcrowded, understaffed prisons for un- unconstitutionally dangerous conditions, a lawsuit that's still ongoing. Since then, the average age of Alabama inmates has increased from 39 to 42 as of 2021. There's been a 15% increase in prisoners aged 60 and above, department data shows, while spending on medical services increased 65% over that same time, from $112.2 million to $184.9 million. Okay, we can talk about the corruption in the prison system, like, all day. This is something I fucking love to talk about. Well, not the... So... Not the corruption. So what I was going to ask is what I specifically want to address, because I feel like it's an interesting topic. When is life in prison really supposed to end? I mean, think about it. Yes, the Golden State Killer was still killing in his 40s, at least, and he wasn't apprehended until he was 72. So there were more crimes he was guilty of, I'm sure, than he actually was convicted of. But could the people currently serving in their 60s, 70s, and 80s really continue to commit their crimes depending on what crimes they committed? Maybe. This is a a perfect segue into my thoughts on it. Number one, the prison system is a corporation in and of itself. It is to make money. They get subsidies from the government that helps fund them. But at the same time, they also make money by keeping people in prison. They are different, majority of the time, they are different than government prisons. Like, there are government prisons, but they're normally privatized prisons. And when you do things like that, you have medical expenses. Because, I mean, uh, disabilities don't, don't neg- like, they don't 
bypass people who are terrible. You know, you could have a serial killer and have and that person have diabetes. And the problem that you have when you have people who are in prison who have diabetes is that they're typically not treated properly. They aren't getting given the insulin or the diet that they need. They're not given the medical care that they actually require, which then leads to things like amputation. And when you talk about amputation, when you're living in a prison, you're talking about aftercare because they don't just like, they don't just send prisoners to get amputations and they do all the recovery that you would typically do with an amputation. They send you to get an amputation and then you go back to prison where you can get sepsis, where you can get um, MRSA, where you can get all of these different infections, which ends up costing you more money because anytime something like that happens, it means it comes out of your tax funds because it has gone back into a government fund that says, oh, you need to take care of these people. This is why people hate prisons. Because it's not, when you have people who are this age, who have disabilities, who have things like this, who have done horrible things, a privatized prison is not the place that they need, they actually need to be. They need to be in a facility that can care for their needs and hopefully try to rehabilitate them. And the people that can't be rehabilitated, which is... Um, poisoning grandma, like we just talked about. For I sure. don't think she can be. But we're also talking about people who were put into prison um, unjustly. Or people who were put into prison because they had a little bit of pot on them. And it was the third time they had a little bit of pot on them. And so they're in there for life. Three strikes, you're out. Lifetime sentence. And did anywhere in between. Yeah, so we're the the prison system is something I could literally talk about all day fucking long. But at the end of the day, I just don't think that the way that we have it set up is beneficial. Not only like, and I'm not saying this because I like see prisoners as like, oh no, they didn't do anything wrong. But that's not what this is. That's me saying, if I was in a position like them and I was caught with a bag of weed like three times and I had to live in a prison for the rest of my life because three strikes I was out, um, I wouldn't want to live in that. It's 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 a basic human right to get the medical well, care and that's why, and things like that. that and you that's kind of why I want to bring it up. It's like, is it worth holding some of these people anymore? I mean, Betty Jo Green is 100% guilty and deserves to be in prison for taking the lives that she did. She can also still do it at her age. But she's also 92 at this point. So I don't even know at 92 how much she can even get around, let alone have access to any kind of arsenic. It would make sense to put her in some type of home She's not going anywhere to get arsenic. As long as it's not readily available to her, she's not going to be able to do it again. And she's 92. It's not like she can go on Google and figure out what's the most poisonous thing. I highly doubt she has the capabilities of that. Yeah, so is, is she, it really worth keeping her there? Because she, the per but my question is, what is the purpose of jail? Define that for me and you can tell me a lot. Is it for punishment or is it for rehabilitation? And in this case, it's a question of, has she been punished enough? We already... 
can assume she's not going to be rehabilitated. So has she been punished enough and can she do any further harm? She seems to have no family that will claim her or can. And her life is basically over. Like any good years are gone. Our entire justice system is about punishing people who have maybe done wrong. And I give that caveat because our justice system is fucked. And somehow that's been established. Uh, well, well people that aren't actually um, the perpetrator. But the whole point is like, we look at punishing people and I'm not saying like if, if somebody came in to my house tonight and killed my partner, I would want punishment so bad, even though to my core, that is not what I actually want. What I actually want is for that person to get better. Because it takes something very innately wrong with you to kill another person. I would want them to get better and do better as a human being. I know that's what I'd want in my head. But at the end of the day, I know sitting in a, in, in a courtroom, I want the worst punishment for them. Because I couldn't lose my partner. But all of that said... If you're put in a system where it's just going to abuse you constantly, even though you're a bad person, you also have rights that allow you to do things in the court system that take up even more money, even more time. Which is where I was getting. (laughs) I'm sorry. You know, this is a hot topic for me. (laughs) Yeah, no, I know. That's why I knew I was going to give it a little bit of time. But, you know, I was just going to say, like, as it stands, you have 65, 70, 75 and up. That's the ages of the aging population that are incarcerated. And they're costing the state millions of dollars to keep them in prison and keep them alive. Is that even necessary at a certain age? As best I could find, the oldest living inmate currently is Floyd Lee Coleman at the age of 104. And he's serving a life without parole sentence for raping and killing a seven-year-old girl. Which, if he is guilty of that, I 100% do not feel like he should be let out. Again, that's the whole point of parole, correct? You're supposed to review the case, review what happened. Is this somebody we would be willing to let out? We have people serving 5, 10, 15-year sentences tops for raping women. And it's not even their first time being convicted, not accused. Mm -hmm. We know it's a reoccurring thing. We know it's going to more than likely happen again, regardless of the ridiculous words coming out of their mouth. But we're going to let them go. But we're also going to hold a woman who's 92 years old, who's costing us millions of dollars, like, ridiculous amount of money her alone is not costing millions but all the same she's a part of a group of people that are costing millions of dollars to the state because she did something however many years ago that she couldn't possibly do anymore honestly at the very least you could put things in place to prevent that from happening seriously i feel like second again the justice system is effed but yeah you know she's Well, I mean, I actually just listened to another case on true crime all the time because I like I like listening to them because they do more investigative so they can go more in depth. But they covered a case where a person had Alzheimer's and he was older and he was in the prison system. And basically it came up that 
is it really worth keeping him here? Like he has issues. Like he he's not really a threat to this to society anymore. Is there a point in keeping him incarcerated, or could we put him in a home where he can re- live the rest of his years? And his family, who he still did have family, can visit him and, you know, be a part of his life for the last few years that he has left on this earth. And they ended up letting him go. And sure enough, he died died like four years later. It wasn't that much longer and he didn't have much of a life left. But at least his family, his family, got some closure. I think in situations like that, it's hard to navigate. Um because for me if you're if you're talking about this woman who's been in there she's 90 something years old she's lived a good majority a portion of her life in prison um she's elderly she's getting the care that she needs how how insensitive. What's my, my point is what is the point why are we still keeping her there is it actually serving a point at, at, at this junction at 92? I mean, she literally can't have that many years ahead of her. Uh, it, it probably is serving a, a point because once you let them out, you've got to pay for their housing. You've got to quit because they can't get a job. But is it going to be cheaper or more expensive than her actually being in jail? Probably That's more expensive because everything in a prison is subsidized and they get tax write-offs from it. We all know that. Uh, the The whole point is like keeping them in prison is probably going to be better on a tax basis for us. But it also comes down to like the humanitarian aspect of it. What are you willing to let go in your own humanity to keep somebody who is so far gone in their life? especially if we're, we're talking about like Alzheimer's and stuff like that, who can't even reconcile that they actually did something wrong in prison. But again, releasing them, what is that going to do to their own like mental stability when that's been the majority of their life? Where is that's that's what I'm saying. It's a Shawshank Redemption yeah. laundry. <laughs> when we when we talk about like the prison system, that's why I say like the whole prison system in like America is fucked because the way that we do it, it it's it's it, it it's not okay. Um, those people who are just like, well, it's not the way that we the honestly just a blanket statement. The way that the, our justice system does incarceration is not productive. No. In any way, shape, or form. And that's been proven. So a change obviously needs to be made. Um, our justice system is obviously corrupt. Yes. So again, changes need to be made. Our law enforcement industry is corrupt in way too many areas. Not all of them, but too many. Any of them, any of them is too many. So what I'm saying is... The point of of this whole thing is to get people thinking, when is it enough? When should it end? And when is life really life? Because when you have somebody who's 104 years old, he's probably not even hardly moving outside of his cell. So the question is, like, at what point are is it too much? And what is the point? 
Is it actually rehabilitation where we want to rehabilitate those that we can? Or is it straight punishment? And if it is punishment, when do we become, to be perfectly frank, worse than the people that are doing the crimes that we're punishing them for? No, Because some of these crimes aren't worth the punishment that these people are getting. It's definitely punishment. Like, that's that's what we are. I just think that we have found a way and this is if you're listening overseas i know we have quite a few of overseas listeners at the end of the day anything that you do in america is privatized and it's to make money and that goes doubly for the prison system so where you look at places like um Norway and places that have actual rehabilitation for their prisoners. You're not going to see that here because it is a factory. Our prison system is a factory at the end of the day. And it doesn't matter who it eats up and it doesn't matter who gets left in there. When I said the treatment that they get, especially when it comes to disabilities, is abhorrent. Does that mean that I don't, does that mean that I feel bad for them? Not, especially if it's like a Ted, but like if it's somebody who's terrible, no, I don't feel bad for them. But I also do feel bad for them because if they're getting that type of treatment, there is somebody else in there who is probably not guilty, who got caught up in the machine of this entire factory who is getting treated that way and doesn't deserve it. My problem with it is when do we stoop to their level and what solution is there? That's my problem with it. So people who have been punished over and above their sentence because of lack of care as a human being, their basic needs being met who's the person responsible for not meeting basic human needs for somebody who yes has done wrong is by no means exonerated or excused by this statement but is also a fucking human being whether they treated other people as that or not it doesn't matter because i don't want to be the person that treats another person as less than a human being well that's why regardless of why of what you have done or have not done when you look at like statistics people from norwegian companies or companies norwegian countries they have a higher like they have a very low like criminal offense rate and they have a very high like rehabilitation rate and they have a very low reoffense rate and we're talking like when when i say like low reoffense rate they have like one person maybe every five years that would reoffend, and i know that it's a smaller area and that's fine but if you take those same statistics and you place them over mm, like new york and um a portion of like the upper um east of america incredible to look at And it's because when you're in, like, Norwegian countries, they don't look at people who offended as 
other. They're not looking at these people as they're not lost. Yeah. Bad. They're looking at them and, and saying, okay, um, there's obviously something going on. Obviously they can't be in the public. They're charged with this crime. They need to do a mandatory this amount of time. And it's very rare that you hear there where it's like, oh, I wish I could have actually given a life sentence and it actually be a life sentence. Very rare. I think I've heard of three cases there where they wish they could have done that. But the whole point is they take them in. It's not a privatized company that is doing this. It is a part of the government who is bringing them in. They're getting them mental health. They're getting them health care. They're giving them jobs. They're giving them their own space to live with amenities. Not a lot, but amenities. Not a cell with dim light where you lose your eyesight. That's or keeping them isolated and causing more mental anguish. Exactly. You're if if you're doing it like we're doing it in the United States, you're going to prepare. Well, obviously, what we're doing isn't working. So well, the definition of insanity is continuing to do the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. On that note, let's start on our second Black Widow story. Um, not much I could find on this one either. So this epi- this uh, this part of it may be a little bit short, but the info- information was pretty interesting. I also want to make a note that this one to me doesn't ring true for a true Black Widow, but the only reason why I'm including it and thought it fit was because a person in the trial did label her as a Black Widow. Oh. So I don't feel like it was a real true Black Widow because typically, like, if you're thinking about a Black Widow story, you think... One, they kill multiple people. Two, usually poisoning, not any other method typically. Um, But in this case, she only killed one person and she shot him. No poison. Um, But she was just referred to as a Black Widow by the uh, prosecutor. So I'm including her, but it's an interesting case. So I wanted to cover it and it just made the most sense. Prosecutors that got some balls on them some days. I don't know, right? <laughs> I don't know what they're talking about half the time. All right. So this case is about Michelle Marie Bankston and she killed her, who killed her husband. And I'm not going to say allegedly because she was convicted, but Joe Bankston. Michelle married Joe November 21st, 1990. According to appeal docs, and that is where I got the majority of the data because trying to find it in news stories was ridiculous. But uh, most of the information I have is from the appeal docs. Um, According to the appeal docs, they had only been dating for about one month. Oh. So uh, one month to six weeks later, uh, or no, it said, uh, so they had been dating one month, married November 21st. And only six weeks later, on December 31st, 1990, she shot him to death. Oh. And that's where the Black Widow term comes from, I think. I mean... Just the brief, the brief relationship. Uh, Joe was 39 at the time of his death, and Michelle was only 22. So there was a 17-year dif- difference. That's gross. Joe's body was discovered by police in the bathtub of the couple's Dothan home. And here's where we mention a Black Widow sign. Can you guess what it is? Uh, oh, oof. No. 
I'm impressed because it's usually the first thing you ask for. Insurance money. Oh, okay. Well, you fucked me up with that first. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a little different, though, in this case. On the day that they had married, Joe had received an insurance settlement check. So oh. it wasn't a life insurance, but it was insurance that she was aware of. And he received it the day they married for $77,190.89. According to testimony, $60,439 had been spent by the time Joe was killed, which only left a little under $17,000. Okay. So, well, I mean, there's been Black Widow stories where they killed for less, so. I mean, in the, but in the 90s, that could get you, like, a upper middle class house. That's decent. For sure. And, and, if, she were, and she, if, if she was going to get everything from his death like it was all going to be transferred yeah. to her whatever he had was going to be hers so hey so according to wtvy.com houston county district attorney doug valesca was the person who referred to bankston as a black widow and was referencing a movie starring deborah winger that is about a woman driven by greed to murder several men that she first married at the time michelle claimed her husband was killed by a by a cia operative no, Michelle, why? Why didn't you just say, like, somebody, like, broke in? Per the appeal docs. I'm going to try to get through this, y'all. The appellate told the police that her husband was killed by two masked men who broke into her home and knocked her out. She claimed that her husband was a hitman for the CIA, although that fact was disputed by the victim's brother. The victim had been shot four times with a 45 caliber semi-automatic pistol, apparently while he was showering. Hang on. I gotta ask. Listen. And I'm not, like, I'm not... His brothers wouldn't have known if he was a CIA Yeah, operative. I'm not being a dig. But, like, I mean, obviously you would know. But, like, nobody else in my life other than my partner would know if I was, like, in the CIA. So like I watched Alias. You can't tell your partner. Come on. It's not like it's not like and the CIA is not gonna be like, yeah, bro, it was us. No. Like absolutely come on. not. So I'm not I'm not like fully being like she's dumb. The CIA also could have been a little bit smoother about this if necessary. Yeah, true. Well, but, maybe. Yeah. I mean she would have been dead if she knew if she knew she would have been dead too. Um, CIA, I wasn't actually talking shit about you. Let's be honest. I'm just saying. It's like, mm, maybe uh, it could be the thing. Asking the brother is not actually proof that The brother wasn't. said he wasn't. Obviously, that's true. Okay, let's, sure. Okay, um, let's say uh, you killed Paul. Terrible, terrible thing. And they said you did you it. sound really sad. <laughs> They said, I'm sorry, Paul. And they said you did it and your your motive was because you're really into ants. And I came up and I was like, she's not really into ants. That's not a thing. But you were actually really like into ants. You had like an ant farm. I'm just, it, it's like, all of it doesn't, like, that's not an actual, like, reference for this. This is the information provided by the appeal documents. <laughs> it makes no that's sense. That's all I got. 
So anyway, the victim had been shot four times with a 45 caliber semi-automatic pistol, apparently while he was showering. That pistol was discovered outside the house, lying in the grass. When the body was discovered, the cold water was running. There was no evidence of a struggle or a fight inside the residence, which was described as neat in appearance. There was no sign of any forced entry into the residence either. There was evidence that certain items had recently been placed in the washing machine, including a pair of sweatpants, socks, towels, and a sheet. A pair of disposable throwaway surgical gloves and a 45 caliber shell casing were also in the washing machine. Shortly after some shots were fired, the appellate appeared at a neighbor's door. Um, why wouldn't you take the bullet out of your pocket? Why would you leave the gloves in your pocket? Honey, this is not honey. the best part, honey. This is not the best part. The appellate had duct tape over her mouth and her hands were bound by toy handcuffs. After the neighbor removed the duct tape from her mouth, the appellate asked him to call the police and help her husband. There is evidence from which the jury could reasonably have concluded that the appellate herself could have removed the duct tape from her mouth, that the handcuffs could have just popped off, and that the duct tape over her mouth was taken from a roll found in the appellate's residence. But also, why would you just, like, go ahead and start the load of laundry for the This is what you're getting stuck on? Like, Did you miss you know, the part where I said that the handcuffs were toy handcuffs? No, I, I, I got that. <laughs> But but also, okay, so I can forgive her that. I can actually forgive her that. This I want to know what's, I want it to be made more clear what toy means. This are we not, talking, are we it, talking play handcuffs? In which case, all right. Or are we talking like literally plastic? Like, be the, like those plastic handcuffs. ones you get from like the dollar store kids. Yeah, cops and robbers. They have like the little like. I want to know which put on your belt. Look, no, my whole thing is like if somebody broke into my house and they put handcuffs on me, even if they're a toy, like I'm going to be scared shitless. I'm not going to know what to do. I'm probably just going to talk a bunch and not be able a to lot shut of- up. Yeah, you, obviously, that's what you um, do in all situations. Yeah, that's what I do in like every situation in my life. But the whole point is like, I wouldn't know if they were a toy or not. So I can give her that. Like, I can, I can actually give. It her doesn't that. say whether she's handcuffed in the front or back. Oh, was she handcuffed in the front? It doesn't say. Oh, but it was made um, kind of. It, it was kind of hinted that she could have removed the tape from her mouth. So I'm assuming. Right. They were handcuffed in the front. She should have just like pushed a sock in there and then put tape over her mouth. And that would have I mean, if, if she did it, obviously. Unless she, she had like a deviated septum. And girl, if you do, don't put a sock in your mouth before you tape it up. You're not, not going to be able to breathe. My whole point is like, she fucked this whole thing. Like she thought she was being, she thought she was being slick. She thought no she way. was being slick. But... <laughs> She took her clothes off and started washing them and then, and then went and then ran over to the neighbors. And then as her clothes were washed, like, bitch, can you finish your laundry first? Like, that's evidence, honey, that's evidence. And I'm not telling anybody how to murder. I'm just like, what? This is why the memes are that I find work well. Yeah. Because it's like, we we sit here and debate how stupid they are, but we're not actually telling you how to do it and we totally wouldn't do it. But we're just saying, saying. common sense being what it is, it's kind of dumb. Obviously, she was found competent to stand trial, but I wonder if that was an effort to get out of the conviction 
using an insanity plea by the whole CIA thing, or if she actually believed it, uh, maybe she thought she would get out of it by saying it. I don't, I don't really understand. Cause if it really was the CIA is local law enforcement, the people that you really want to talk to, to try to get out of a murder plea. Cause I don't feel like that's going to go real far. Uh, They're a either going to find you guilty um, or B, they're going to turn you over to the CIA who's going to get you killed. So like if it's real. So I don't, I don't feel like that's a, there's a win in that situation. If, if it was real or if you believed it was real anyway. I'm, uh, I don't know. If it, I just would have been like, it wasn't me. And anytime, I like, yeah, that, part out. <laughs> I wouldn't have said anything. I would have just. Been I like, would have said, "There's this person, this woman that's been living on the left side of me my entire life, and they did it, not <laughs> me." My cup. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my bad. Wrong gaze. <laughs> wrong, wrong gaze. Uh, I don't know. I would have just like. I don't know. I. I, I wouldn't have like I wouldn't have like tried to my whole thing is like if you're gonna if you're gonna try and stage something stage something better you're gonna okay, use so toy handcuffs you yeah, can wash okay. your clothes you're gonna put a bullet in there with you get that gonna use toy, toy handcuffs all right so in any case in any case the appeal docs continued because like I said I had to get most of it from the appeal documents the appellate was considered a victim by the police immediately after the murder. However, the appellate became a suspect due, at least in part, to the inconsistencies between the statement the appellate gave the police at the hospital and the one subsequently given at the police station. In her statement at the hospital, the appellate claimed she did not know anything about weapons. Mm-hmm. From the, f- There's so mm-hmm. much in this. From the following facts, the jury could reasonably have concluded that from the appellate had, that they had been knocked out. The appellate did not have any type of serious head injury and appeared to have only a small area of swelling and tenderness on her forehead. She was coherent and could answer questions immediately after the incident occurred and her hyperventilation was intermittent, which is not normally what is seen in a patient that's truly hyperventilating. In November 1990, the appellate told a student with whom she attended a college class that she worked with the FBI. On another occasion, she told the same student that she worked with the CIA and with the IRS. She just really liked those acronyms. When that student would not stop flirting with the appellate, she told him that she would, quote, shoot him if he didn't leave her alone, end quote. On that occasion, the student took a loaded semi-automatic pistol out of the appellate's purse, removed the clip, then handed it back to the appellate. At trial, the student identified the murder weapon as looking like the pistol he had removed from the appellate's purse. On December 31st, 1990, the appellate told the victim that she, quote, bet he would never see the deer horns he was having mounted. The victim. Two or three months before she met her husband, the appellate, and uh, Oakley's giving us a serenade. I'm truly sorry. Two or three months. Two or three months before she met her husband, the appellate told a fellow employee that she had, quote, seen this movie on TV. It was called The Black Widow and that this was a movie about a woman who married rich men and killed them for their money. And she commented that maybe this was something that she ought to try, end quote. After... If you're going to say that to somebody, it better be somebody you know ain't going to go into trial and tell people that. 
After the appellate's marriage, that same employee observed a pistol in the new automobile that the appellate was driving. On that occasion, the appellate told the employee, if anything should ever happen to Joe, don't come calling me the Black Widow. Honey. So shut much. up. The- <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was thinking the whole time I'm reading. I was like, girl, damn. And it's these random people. They're not even like close friends or anything. Okay. So the owner of an auto parts and repair business testified that when the appellate began dating the victim, the appellate owed him between $1,200 and $1,300 for work performed on her automobile. After the appellate refused to pay, the auto parts dealer reminded her of her debt. The appellate became hostile and told him she would get him the damn money. Before the appellate married the victim, she knew, quote, that he was fixing to come into a claim and a large amount of money she felt like, end quote. The appellate also told the auto parts dealer that she was attempting to become a state trooper. What? No, you can't just, you can't go from so, a FBI, CIA, IRS, and then state trooper. So I don't know if she's moving down or up. But it kind of seems like it's all over the place. Like, I'm personally. I'm not, I'm not, this isn't, like, this is me being serious. I think that there is something obviously mentally wrong with her. Yeah, that, that, that was my guess also. Um, obviously, this doesn't prove anything, but it does shed considerable light on a post- possible motive, as well as planning and forethought, neither of which are good for her case. And the last part of the appeal document I'll reference said... However, the appellate testified and presented evidence on her own behalf, and depending oh, on no. which witness the jury believed, there were also facts from which the jury could have found the appellate not guilty. There was not positive direct evidence that the appellate shot the victim. All the evidence against the appellate was just circumstantial. I mean, true. A conviction based solely on circumstantial evidence can only be sustained if the jury could have reasonably found that the state's evidence concluded every reasonable hypothesis except that of the defendant's guilt. A possibility, even a probability, that the crime occurred in the way that the state alleges is not enough to support a conviction. Because of the mere possibility, suspicion, or guesswork, no matter how strong, will not overcome the presumption of innocence, in theory. If the circumstantial evidence can be reconciled with a theory that someone other than the accused might have done the criminal act, then the defendant's conviction must be reversed. So speculations, suppositions, and probabilities, no matter how strong, are not sufficient to overcome the presumption of innocence. Our law authorities, the state, our law authorizes the state to inflict punishment for criminal acts only when the state's evidence overcomes the presumption of innocence and establishes the defendant's guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Okay. I have that being ask. said, do you Oof. feel like there's enough? I don't, here's my problem. I don't see another option. Uh, no, well, no, no, I'm no, kind no. of at a loss. That who well, else could have done it? That's, that's my problem. It's like the, the only thing I wanted to ask you throughout that whole thing is, did they do like a GSR test? That wasn't, there? That was that didn't show. I, d- I didn't see anything about that. Okay. I think they initially assumed she was innocent, and so by the time they considered her a suspect, it was too late to do any of that. I so I don't like think they did days. it to begin with. I think you can still get traces for anyone who doesn't know. GSR is test is like a gunshot residue. Gunshot residue. Yeah. Um, but they just like swab your hand. They see if you have residue. Um, 
Damn. Now I think it's standard they do it in any person that's yeah. possibly involved. But I, I think at this point they might not have because that was nine and that was the early nineties. Okay, so they didn't do that. Um, the only evidence you have is like her. The problem, the problem that you have here is that you're creating like a dramatized like narrative because she had like kitty cuffs on her and she had like duct tape that wasn't fully there and things like that okay it's a lot of circumstantial let's take that aside and then all of the testimonies of all the people all around her the entire time before she dated while she was dating and after she married yeah i think my biggest i wouldn't even like before i even took that into account the only thing i'm thinking about is like that night she she started a load of laundry that had a bullet in it and gloves, latex gloves. At the very um, least, but, but toss that, that out could, in a neighbor's trash can. Come on, dude. That could be like, mm, planted. I was target shooting right before. Yeah, well, it could be planted. It, I mean, I have latex gloves that I use when I handle like poultry and pork in my house. I put those glo- like gloves on. To deal with the, the, the meat and then I throw them away. That makes sense. But if you pair it up with like a bullet case. Like why would you have a bullet casing? And then why would you start a load of laundry? I don't know. But it could all be planned. It could. Also we already spoke about the fact that her mental capacity or uh, possible illness could have played a role in which case she would have been doing weird things but we're talking about it based on people who are given testimony after True. they know or after they think that she's already a criminal i don't know i'm being like devil's advocate here that's fair uh, i'm not saying the cia did it CIA. I don't know that I would say if I was on that jury, I'd be able to convict without beyond yeah. a reasonable doubt. I, I feel like there's definitely a reasonable doubt here. There's not enough physical evidence to tie her to anything, in my opinion. Yeah, exactly. Based on the information provided, which is all I could find. So, if, if she. There may if, have been other things in the trial that I'm not privy to. If they had done a GSR test and it came back positive on her hands, I, I would say yes, 100%. But they didn't do anything that ties her physically. As far as we can sell. As, long, as far as we yeah, can sell. To this case. So I couldn't, like, reasonably, I couldn't be like, yeah, she fucking did it. Do I have, like, questions? And do I, am I like, well, uh, eh. But I, I don't ha- The whole point of, like, a trial thing and the whole point of you being on a jury is to sit there and say, do you have questions beyond a reasonable doubt? Like, do you think that she actually killed her? Do you know for certain? No, I don't. There's no physical way for me to know exactly if she did. This is all like hearsay. It's all like just people. It's a bunch of people from the past saying, yeah, she was a bit weird. She did all this stuff with like guns and stuff like that. Um, You know... It could be, I mean, if you talk to people from like my teens, they'd be like, uh, she was crazy as fuck. People from now would say that. Well, yeah, that's true. But in a different (laughs) way. The the whole point is like. They're like, nah, dude, she didn't do it. How do you know? Because you wouldn't have caught her. (laughs) 
when you go into like a trial, you're also like you're you're taking two major sides of two different like things. The prosecutor is going to look at every single thing from your past. If you look at every single thing from my past, I'm a shitbag. But I'm also great. But they're not going to talk about the great things. If you, no, that's your, that's your defense's job. Yeah, and that's the defense's job. But if the defense isn't going to be like, and they also have restrictions about what they can say. So if you're just like, you can have a prosecutor who is just like dogging you. They got a DUI. They um, pick, you know, they stole from a, a store. They did all this stuff, but they the the defense attorney can't actually say well because of this this person actually went into advocacy work and they did all of this stuff to make things better they can't do that until after you've been convicted and you're going into your sentencing because that's when they talk about how good of a person you are and that's when they talk about like because of all the good things they do do they actually so you're not taking that into account. So you're talking about people who are looking at every bad aspect of your life and they're bringing it up. That's why, again, justice system fucking sucks in the United States. But do I think she's guilty? I don't know. I, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I don't know either after even doing the research. But needless to say, the appellate court upheld the conviction, so she wasn't released. She received 25 years in 1991. And in 2003, she was transferred to Louisiana along with inmates in an effort and along with other inmates in an effort to relieve overcrowding at the state women's prison. According to GadsdenTimes.com, families of some Alabama inmates transferred to Louisiana lockups to relieve overcrowding at the state women's prison. Um, and they have begun organizing about 40 friends and relatives of prisoners met in Montgomery and exchanged concerns about the unprecedented transfers. Are we stuck in Louisiana? What do we do now? Asked James Buckalt, whose daughter, Michelle Bankston, the one we're talking about, 35, was in the first group transferred on April 13th. Bankston was scheduled to begin taking classes by correspondence in the fall, her father said, but her education is on hold now that she's in Louisiana. And they want you to better yourself, he said. Hogwash. All you, all of you have a voice, have a political voice. There are 27,000 people incarcerated in Alabama, said Vanessa, Vanessa Philly, an investigator with the Southern Center for Human Rights and told who told the group Thursday night. Everyone connected to them has a political voice. Michelle was approved for release on parole December 13th, 2016, according to Alabama Department of Correct, Corrections spokesperson Bob Horton on WTVY.com article. So she very nearly served her full 25 years. It was short by a couple months, I think. I found a few comments on a Facebook post, because this is a little bit more recent, that actually mentioned her, and it was from a news station that posted about her release. So Kelly Tucker is her sister, and she said, Lenola Miller, uh, she was like tagging a, a previous commenter. Again, me media doesn't know everything. She's done work release off and on for most of her time there and is in transition now. 
they still had to have a parole as scheduled. Michelle made the most of her time earning several vocational certificates and degrees. She worked hard while she was there and did what she was supposed to do. She's not one of those people that are repeat offenders that most people have pictured in their head or the media portrays. She's been offered several jobs outside of the Dothan area. I know people don't know the whole truth, but she was never given a chance. All Doug Valeska, which I think was the DA, was worried about was painting this horrible picture of her, and a lot of people believe it, and that's fine. She's done her time and wants to move on with her life. Thank you for your kind words. The news should really look for the truth and stop the speculation and lies. Do not judge others, especially if you do not know the truth. Doug Valeska did not prove anything. There are so many people who are falsely accused in prison today, but people are quick to judge. And then there were other people that were arguing and I, I did have one on here, but I just don't really want to get into it, but I was able to find her. I will not tell you what her name is, okay. but good. She has moved on. Um, and she does seem like she's thriving. It looks like she's moved on with her life. She's, she's got a whole new thing going on. Um, it doesn't look like she's remarried. Um, it just looks like she's doing her and living her life and, and moving on. So I'm here for that. very, it also seems like a very quiet life, not super out in the public or anything, just doing her own thing. So I think this is a case where maybe it was a mental health thing and she got the mental health help that she needed, or maybe she just, I don't know. She wasn't even guilty and she served the time and now she's, keeping her head down so nobody looks at her yeah because as you as you were saying the statement from it was her sister right yeah that was her sister uh that sounded like a statement that was written up by a lawyer well duh uh so and i'm not saying like that's i can't i can't her her sister felt it just it felt very it was very uh safe which is fair. Yeah. But also, if I was the sister, I'd be defending the crap out of her, too. So especially yeah. if I didn't feel like she actually did it. I'm going to be honest. If Montana did it, I'd know. It would probably be you suspiciously would, quiet. Yeah, but yeah, you would, you would still like, <laughs> but I would, no, even if, even if I did it, it I, would, like, <laughs> I always go back to like, in, in cases like that, because there's not enough evidence, like I really don't feel like there if, was enough. If I was on that I mean, jury, like I said, unless there was something in the trial that wasn't that I wasn't able to find, I based on the, everything that I saw, not I enough. would. It's not mm-hmm. enough, and I always go back to cases of like um, the West Memphis Three or uh, Adnan Syed, where all of them continuously said that they didn't do what they were convicted of and they ended up spending more time in prison than they would had they had just said yeah i did it what if she was targeted yeah what if somebody knew that they could slip something into something she ate or drank she took psychotropic or whatever it's called drugs and she was like told all these things that she genuinely believed because she was under the influence and, and she thought all of it was real. I mean, that is a justifiable something that could have happened. And then in the meantime, they went while she was out of it and did all the things. And she never even remembers or saw them. That right there 
is reasonable doubt to me. And they didn't prove that that didn't happen. Well, if they didn't test for GSR, they definitely didn't test for her being drugged. And GSR, I know, was around in the 90s. Like, that's not... The test was definitely around. I don't know if it was standard to just test anybody that could have been yeah, involved. Fair enough. Because they ne- it said in there that they automatically assumed her to be a victim until she gave a testimony at the hospital. And then when she came back to the police station to give, like, the official testimony, it varied from the one in the hospital. That's when she became a suspect. So that could have been within days. Well, and that whole, like, just as an FYI to anybody who's listening, when they say that your initial statement varies from what you give them later, so if you're ever involved, it should. It it typically does. Welcome to human memory. As we've already discussed. That's faulty. Yeah. Ask for a lawyer. Uh, It's a glaring, like, light on how like our justice system works and it's we need to close a case and we don't care how we do it um am i saying that this person was innocent no but i can't tell you i can't sit here and say that they actually did it because there's no actual proof there's no physical proof and there are cases there are cases where there's no physical proof, but they write it off as something other than a murder. And I'm talking about, um, what was her name? The one who had the stab wounds to the back of her head and they said she committed suicide or died by suicide. Don't ask me names. I know. But I know who you're talking about. Yeah. So there is a case and it, it's, semi-recent past decade where bad relationship with the boyfriend, the boyfriend went to the gym. She was found later when the boyfriend couldn't get into the apartment, quote unquote. And he broke down the door because he's such a super macho guy. And she had stab wounds to the back of her head. And they said she died by suicide. She did that to herself. So you're telling me that there's not enough evidence for a homicide case in this, but there's enough evidence in that case to convict somebody. That's that's my whole thing. Like, where do we draw he the line? He was definitely killed. He was definitely by killed. somebody else. No, no doubt about that. But there's no whether it was her. She did. I don't. I don't feel any. I don't feel any concrete justification for sending her to jail for 25 years personally with the information provided. No. And she might have done it. I don't, I don't actually know. I mean, according to our law, she was convicted. And so she technically, but she also did her time. Yeah. Quietly. And served all of it, which is more than I can say for some people. Uh So Um, that is, that's all I got. (sighs) <sighs> well, I mean, this has been a fucking roller coaster of a night. We are it, over it really two was. hours in. Listeners, we you're are. only going to get about an hour of this. <laughs> an hour and like maybe 15, 15 minutes. minutes. Yeah. Something yeah. like that. But thanks for bearing with us. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Hope you uh, appreciated slash enjoyed the last two Black Widows. Um, I will be looking to do Black Widow cases in other states. So, 
if you have one that you want to hear from Mississippi, Georgia, Florida, possibly Tennessee, I'm allowed to do those, but Montana has informed me that I'm not allowed to encroach on the Carolinas as if she's ever going to cover one of these. But if there is one you want to hear, let us know. I'd love to cover it, but I'm going to be trying to find one, the next one pretty soon. I don't know. I might lift the ban on the Carolinas because there's some really good ones up here. I ain't going to cover them if you're going to ban them. You'll have to do them yourself. I know. Um, Oh, God. So if you have any, like, Black Widow episodes that you want to submit, uh, be sure to message Samantha on social media. She's our social media manager. Social media. So she's going to be the one who... And you're going to do that on Facebook or Instagram at Reaper Tales Podcast. Yes. If you have any unsolved cases, any weird disappearances, anything that is odd and you can't get off your mind and you're fascinated with, send it to me. And you want to give Montana a new obsession? Yes, because I will spend literally 18 hours just looking at it. Too much time. Uh, Email me at reapergals at reapertales.com. Uh, you can also email us your so show. I do it every time. I don't know why. Show suggestions. Email us to tell us we did a good job and email us if we got anything wrong because I'm just going to delete it and I'm not going to look at it. I'm going to tell Samantha. Secretly, I go into the deleted yeah. folders and I'll look at it and then I'll yeah. make adjustments as needed. There you go. And acknowledge it. Even if it wasn't my mistake, I'll acknowledge Montana's for her. Oh, God. <laughs> Samantha. Be- oh, yeah. Be sure to like, rate, review, subscribe, all of the things. And you get triple bonus points this week. Only this week, though. Yeah. If you write a written review. the I, I won't tell you what the brownie points and bonus points add up to. Um, that's going to be a special surprise. Yeah. If you do it. Yeah, true so. that. Ask me. <laughs> all right love you mean it um until next time bye the reaper will come for us all